third wheel. In this episode, we are going to be discussing chapters 33 through 43 of The Way of Kings by Brandon Sanderson. Uh, I'll be straight up, there are some banger chapters in this section, and I'm excited to get to some of them. I don't remember which ones are especially good, but I'll take your word for it when we get there. This is the one when we were reading it, you were making distress noises of, oh no, we're gonna be talking philosophy. Oh, it's, good. It's, it's this one. I doubt it's going to be those chapters I'm talking about, but anyways, I'm Jesse. I'm the person who's read all of these books before. I'm Tyler. I have read all of these, all of Mistborn, except The Secret History. I'm Bion, and I need to reread Mistborn so I can actually remember things beyond, like, two characters and a cool plot point. God, I side comment, I was talking to Bion about Wax and Wayne, because I had just finished it, like, an hour before, and I was like, okay... So now I'm reading Secret History, and it's about this character from original Mistborn. His name is Kaladin. I'm sorry, not Kaladin. <laughs> Other thing. Listen, Sanderson likes this name. His name is Kelsier. Do you remember him? And Beyond's like, no. The only thing I remember is Vin and that the words in the metal couldn't change. It's like, okay, well, Kelsier's a central character. I guess you remember this one detail off to the side but not any central plot points. That's okay. I thought that the written word could be changed unless it was on that specific material. Very awesome, okay? I'm just shaming you. And We're talking about- I have just read chapters 33 for 43. <laughs> I actually haven't just read it. I read it earlier today, so... Wow, you're uh, The really takes are slightly up. less fresh than usual. Yeah. Pre-made. For this section, most of what sticks out to me is sort of just brandon sanderson's work on the psychological trajectories of the characters so i want to be just keeping track of what characters are thinking about their situation and why that leads them down the road they end up going on so i'll be keeping track of that Um, so i guess we'll just get started then chapter 33 is called cymatics uh at the start of this chapter, we are following Shalon doing some very diligent scholarly work, but also stopping her scholarly work to snoop on whatever Yasna's scholarly work is. Sneaky. Just doing some sneaking. But while she's doing this, essentially the her state of mind that I want to pull out is that this is the point at where she's moving towards the idea that... She's still trying to consciously say that scholarship isn't what she's here to do, but she's acknowledged that it's getting harder to pretend that that's the case. So that's where she's at at the start of this chapter. Yeah, she is not like becoming the mask or anything. She just, um, gosh, there's like a specific thing I'm thinking of. It's like, I don't want it as she's doing it (laughs) the whole time. Yeah, like you said, this is kind of her whole arc until kind of the end of the book is like, I definitely don't want to be a scholar, she said, as she pursued scholarly stuff and kept forgetting the reason she was there. Well, the issue is that 
she isn't denying that she wants to be a scholar. It's just the only difference between her cover story and the person she actually is, is her circumstances. Like, if the circumstance was not that her father is dead and her family needs to be rescued, and she was in the same situation, she would be psyched. Hmm. And that's pretty much the only distinction between her and her cover story. Um, and while Shalon is down in the library snooping on Yasna, she finds that one of the books that Yasna has been researching is from a book of children's stories, and she's a little perplexed. Which, at least, um, from my opinion, children's stories come to say a lot about a society because those are often where... No, wow, this book really says a lot about our society. No, I'm sorry. Everything I do is like, well, society. No, it's fine. In context of our society. But children's books are where you see a lot of the simplified values. ideals, values of whatever place you're living in. It tells you... The, the basic, like, life skills, life lessons kids should hopefully learn through that as opposed to having to outwardly experience it themselves and make the mistakes themselves. I mean, kids obviously will make the mistakes and do random things themselves. But children's books have a purpose, and they have more value than, I don't know, bodice rippers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the issue is that Yasna is like trying to find historical events rather than sort of like cultural through lines. Although I guess if certain stories have stories about what to do about when there's a void bringer around, that might be something she's interested in, even if it's totally made up. So back in their study nook, Shalon is visited by Cabzal. We're getting a lot of Cabzal in this section. A bit Great. He's really trying to save her soul. You know, it's just for soul saving. There's a lot of jam. Um, Is that a euphemism or? No, I mean, literally, there's like so much jam talk in this section. And the talk of the fruits that make the jam. <laughs> Hashtag jam talk. Are fruits grown in strange rock-like protrusion as well? Probably. Lots of talk of slathering jam and luscious bites of bread with jam. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, Hmm. Actually, I think, uh, not in this section, but one of the kinds of jam they mentioned do not grow in rocks. Thousand percent. Okay. Right? Where do they grow? Well, I presume in, like, normal ground, right? Strawberries? I don't think they reference strawberries. That's there's why a, I said not in this section. Uh, there's a chapter later on in this book called Strawberries. Oh. Because these ones are like strange consonants berries. Consonant berries? This one well, I'm looking yeah. at right now is called Simberry. Yeah. Break out What a the, simp. Yeah, but I was just going to say break out the simp berries. Perfect. We're going to simp for Shalon. Where's the lie? Just I like can't that find priest it. dude. <laughs> oh yeah, he's such a simp. But yeah, in this chapter, Shalon, just to, you know, expand on where she's at psychologically, she says that during these last few weeks she'd found herself thinking of Cabzal in ways that would have better been avoided. So that's where she's at. Uh, so they, the simping is working. Yeah. Uh they're they flirt pretty heavily for like three pages. 
one thing that I pulled out is that Kabzal notes that Yasna has a history of corrupting those with whom she comes in contact. Lesbian. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I hadn't thought about it like that, but I like it. I mean... I, def- I definitely just thought that's how I read it. I mean, obviously it's a little bit of her not really religious thing, but just the way the way the tone and so much on the soul saving just felt a bit she's a lesbian i don't know if these this particular religion would think of being a lesbian as something that requires the saving of your soul but maybe that's just just because it hasn't been addressed explicitly brando sando get on it the ardents are into it (laughs) i mean i wouldn't be surprised have you seen how they talk about jam (laughs) Um, Y'all Wardens are freaky. Yeah. Um, So over the course of this flirting, Cobzall claims that he has real evidence of the existence of the Almighty that he thinks could convince Yasna that the Almighty is real and that she's been wrong her whole life. And essentially he pulls the trick with sand on a vibrating plate, which, you know, looks cool. But he says that this... Uh, these patterns match the layouts of the major cities of Roshar. But Shalon's like, yeah, people built those, though. Which is a convincing argument for me. But Yeah. <laughs> Good job, Shalon. Kabzal is very, very determined. I mean, unless the people... I don't know. I think Kabzal is uh, grasping at straws. Yeah. I mean, that might just be my skepticism about things but also it's just not a very good argument and i think it's not supposed to be a very good argument it makes me think of the youtube hacks where it's like look at this cool thing if you do this it'll show magic and it's not actually ever going to be what they have because it's just editing magic and we proved the existence of god parentheses jasna hates it parentheses <laughs> gone wrong Something about destroying snowflakes. So Yasna turns up and interrupts this spiel, essentially saying that she's heard it all before. And she She's like, you fool. I'm I am sand. <laughs> Rough and coarse and gets everywhere. Anyways. You thought you could defeat me. <laughs> um she tells Shalon to look out. He uh the devotaries have tried to turn her wards against her before and that he's probably going to try to convince her to steal her soul caster and then shallan does a big big guilty like gulp yeah big cartoonish scooby-doo gulp exactly (laughs) jinkies i I dropped my glasses (laughs) i can't see without my soul caster so that's that chapter uh, 30, chapter 34 is called Stormwall, and this is where we hit a stretch of total banger chapters for a little while. Then it settles down, but these few chapters are real good. This is the one where Kaladin dies, right? Half dies. Um, so Just gets brutalized by the weather. By nature. Man versus Storm by Bear Grylls. Um, Wait, what? How did you just pronounce that name? Bear Grylls? Grylls? I'm pretty sure it's pronounced Grylls. Whatever. Um, luckily He's Kaladin a man of the wild, it's okay. Isn't, isn't Bear Grylls. So at the start of this chapter, Kaladin wakes up 
strapped to the top of the barracks roof because at the end of last section, he was arrested for screwing up the bridge approach. Yeah. Uh, we hear that Lamorel, the high, the lord that was in charge of all the bridge crews, was executed because he just could not wait to beat up Kaladin, and Kaladin would have spoken on his behalf, but nope, he's dead. So now the idea is that Kaladin has been sentenced to death, but they have sort of a tradition that someone being sentenced to death can be judged by the high storm. So they're going to leave him out on the roof of the barracks while a high storm comes, which will almost certainly kill him. Enjoy. <laughs> yeah. So essentially, at the beginning of this chapter, Kaladin is tied to the roof of the barracks while various members of Bridge 4 sort of say, we'll miss you, man. We'll miss you, Gancho. <laughs> I don't think Lopin is explicitly in this chapter, but I'll just assume that he said something along those lines. If Lopin isn't on screen, you have to assume that he was doing something very important. Yeah. Um, all the Bridge 4 guys are pretty sweet. They're like, we'll remember you, and we're not going to go back to being total depressed, doomed people. We'll keep doing our traditions and be alive. They're not going to become doomers? Yeah, pretty much. Something that Kaladin should keep in mind should he survive. Hmm. Nah, he's he's gonna do his really good mental health practices. Yup. We'll, we'll get to that. Um, before the high storm comes, Kaladin tells his men that he's Jesus. And that at the end of the storm they'll come out and he'll still be alive. Yeah. Uh, which... Not to continue with mixing up who Kaladin and Kelsier are, but... I mean, Kelsier's Jesus, too. Kind of the exact same thing. Then, before heading inside, Teft hands Kaladin a sphere to hang on to, because there's a superstition that if you carry a sphere with you into the storm, at least you'll have a light by which to see. Hmm. It's a big hmm. Teft seems to know some things. Uh, it does make me wonder, I don't know if this is a question for later or not, but it's, I mean, at this point, it's pretty clear that he's, like, absorbing the stormlight to heal and get powers. Um, and I don't have the answer to this, but I it does make me curious if, like, is he absorbing it directly from the storm, or is he just like constantly pulling out of it, pulling it out of the sphere that is pulling it out of the storm? So, if you're reading the storm section closely, um, it says that the sphere only gets infused at the very end of the storm. Ah. So the idea is that the sphere is uninfused pretty much the whole time, but then it gets infused at the end, and then Kaladin immediately consumes that. Although, we get some stuff about the dynamics of the actual production of Stormlight within a storm later on in the series. Understood. It gets pretty cool. So, at the end of this chapter, he sees the storm wall coming, and then we get to chapter 35, called A Light by Which to See. So... It's that sphere. Yeah. Um, so, this is 
I wouldn't call it an action sequence, but it's sort of written like an action sequence. Like, there's no enemy. It's just someone who's, like, dying very persistently for, like, five pages. He's trying to weather the storm. Yeah, that's a good analogy. It's not even an analogy. It's literally what's happening. It's it's just what's happening. Thanks. <laughs> I like my analogies perfectly literal with no level of metaphor whatsoever. It's like a guy trying to survive a storm. <laughs> um, but Syl is helping him. She, he sees moments where she's standing in front of him, her face to the wind, tiny hands forward, as if she were trying to hold back the storm and split the winds as a stone divided the waters of a swift stream. That's always just an image that uh, sort of sticks with me with this chapter, is the sort of image of this tiny little spren trying to protect him from this big storm. Yeah. There's some good stuff. I definitely liked the imagery of that. Speaking of imagery, near the end of the storm, Kaladin sees a massive face made of storm taking up the entire sky. It's the Storm Father. You think? Storm Daddy. Yeah, it's Storm Daddy. Storm Daddy take you. Storm Zaddy. Oh no. Um, but yeah, at the end of the storm, the sphere he's holding bursts to life, and then it goes done, because he breathed in the stormlight, which we'll see in a later chapter. In regards to the uh, magical globular currency, do glassmakers explicitly know how to make it so it'll catch the light? What about the glass? It's not know. the glass that catches the light, it's the little... It's the, uh, the gems inside it. It's the gems inside it, so if he just casually decked himself out with the gems, could he just be constantly, I don't know, photosynthesizing, except it's not Photosynthesizing? Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is that, like, gems only become infused with storm light at the end of storms. Right, but I think what Beyond's asking is, like, is there some... What Beyond's asking is, like, if you just had an emerald in your hand at the end of the storm, would it become infused? Or is there something about yeah, what they do to it, it before it, when they turn it into money? Yeah, just a raw gem gets infused. Uh, okay. You, uh, like, they've talked about how the Parshendi have gems, like, woven into their That's beards true. and stuff that glow. Uh, They talk a little bit about how cut gems hold more, which I don't really understand how, unless it's sort of like a surface area kind of thing. Which, in which case, you'd want, like, gem powder, but... Cut it into a 16-sided shape? Yeah, it might have some kind of numerology thing about the sides and shapes, and that would... Fractals. That would make some sort of sense to me. Um, So, after we see Kaladin struggle to survive the storm... Uh, we see the bridgemen file out of the barracks, expecting to see Kaladin's corpse. Um, we get some nice little text about whether or not Teft believes that Kaladin is going to survive. If you don't believe, why are you following? If you did believe, you'd look. You wouldn't stare at your feet. You'd look up and see. Which I just like. And he does look up and see, and Kaladin is alive, but barely. Mostly dead. 
and Teft finds the done sphere in Kaladin's hand, and he somehow knows how to put two and two together about this, when most people would not. We'll figure that out later. Teft knows how to do storm math. Storm math, yeah. That's about right. Storm this math. Storm you straight to whatever they call Oh, they call it damnation. That's not Storm you straight to Storm Daddy. <laughs> hey, how about the fact that we're only like halfway through this book? I'm looking at the page count right now. Oh boy, sure is a lot of book. Uh, but it also does the thing that apparently Sanderson got much better at. Where like... As I'm reading Wax and Wayne and reading Way of Kings, it's like he keeps making the part where the book gets really exciting and you can't put it down just a couple pages earlier every time. It's called the Sanderlance. We'll get to it. Wait, is that real? I thought that was just a meme. What's the difference between memes and reality? Oh no. Memes become reality. I mean, when you're talking about media discussion, yeah. Yeah. The memes, Jack. So chapter 36 is called The Lesson, and this is an iconic chapter. It's uh, a real I good am... Oh, oh, I remember which one this is. Oh, yeah. I don't have anything to say about this chapter, because I, like, I don't... This seems like one where you almost just have to read everything in the series and then come back to it. How so? It's just so, like, unless I'm... Well, just like... Oh, never mind. I'm so sorry. I thought this was the one later where she goes to space hell. Oh, no. That's not even in this section. Thanks, Tyler. That's... There is no space hell in these ten chapters, sir. Well, never mind. I'm this to... one is really good, then. Sorry, I just skimmed the first part, and I was like, Jasna bath? I remember a bath being adjacent to that, but I think I just read this whole, like, chunk of chapters at once, so it all kind of ran together. No, this is the chapter involving Jasna's lesson, hands-on lesson in... <laughs> hands-on. In... In criminal philosophy. Yeah, criminal good for philosophy. her. This is, in fact, the one where we might have to talk for a minute. I don't necessarily think so. I mean, I think the, I don't eth know. The, the ethics of it aren't that interesting. It's a pretty old question. It's just more the fact that it's what we learn about Yasna as a character. Like, I don't think the ethical discussion generated by her actions is that interesting. It's not, like, a super new idea. It's just... It's a I've, new thing we learn about Yasna. If Beyond doesn't have anything to say about it, then yeah, that's fine. Well, I mean, it's in contrast to what Cal's dad says in a later chapter about killing. I guess I just assumed you would have a pop-off about this. Um... You don't have to. I know I don't like what Cal's dad said because it was one of those things where it's like, if we use their methods, we're the same as them. It's like, no, sir. Taking action against oppressors is not the same as oppressing someone. I literally can't tell the difference. 
yeah. Um, let, let's continue and we'll see if I have words to say about this, but it, it made sense. I... Okay. So at the beginning of this chapter, Shalon is attending to Yasna while Yasna is taking her bath. She's reading a book. Um, essentially, the beginning of this chapter, Shalon is struggling with the fact that she's in a situation where, like this current situation, attending Yasna at her bath, she could steal the soul caster right now, and she isn't doing it. And then Yasna pays her a genuine compliment. And it makes Shalon realize that she can't do it. I'm a fool. I came all of this way, and now I can't do it. So this is, like, Shalon goes through, like, three different points of thinking in this one chapter. But this is where she's starting in this chapter. Is that mm -hmm. she's realized that it's just not going to happen. She isn't going to steal it. Not because she can't, but be because, you know, she can't. So that's where she's starting here. But then Yasna says that you're done studying history for now. We're going to get something more hands-on, more visceral, as she describes it. Which, she's so funny. And also, just a note, Shalon kind of quotes Nietzsche, and she says, Why write our philosophies, draw our conclusions, if not to influence others? Little uh, Friedrich Davar, Shalon Nietzsche. It's a Nietzsche thing. I'll take your word for it. Russian words are hard to pronounce. Good He's job, using. Yeah, I was gonna say. Oops. I kind of just... How it's all dark and depressing and the human condition. And it, so because of that, it has to be Russian. <laughs> no, I, I think it might be because, like, in high school, it was around the time when we were reading uh, uh, Crime and Punishment and stuff like that. I think all those consonant-fulfilled names came together to one monolith of this period of time had a lot of development into things. I think they were contemporaries, Nietzsche and Dostoevsky. That's Any the word. Anyways. Yes. Um, so after their brief talk about the value of philosophy, they head out for a night on the town. <laughs> Um, so essentially Yasna takes Shalon <laughs> into town without hiring anyone to be their escort or hiring any street vehicles. And she sh goes around going through alleys, flashing her money everywhere. Things are about to get hot and heavy, so to speak. Yeah. And essentially Yasna says that there's been a rash of muggings in this area that resulted in murder and they're going to see what they can do about that. Um, so once Yasna has given that explanation right on cue, some muggers materialize at the end of the alley. Um, and we get this line from Yasna and now Yasna said, voice hard and grim, the lesson, which is some iconic stuff for our girl Yasna Colon. So, Yasna essentially gets a quadra kill with three different <laughs> forms of soul casting magic. One footpad she turns into fire, another she turns into crystal, and then the last two at range while they're running away, notably, are turned into smoke. 
Amazing. What a bold move. So for me, like, I love this chapter, not necessarily because it's like a deep philosophical question of whether or not Yasna was right. It's just a very shocking turn for her character. Like, we were not thinking that this is the type of thing Yasna would do. But here she is. I mean, I, when I read this, my thoughts were very, like, I didn't think that she had the capability to just go out and kill four people. But that wasn't because I thought that, like, she was weak or that thinking that these people were undeserving of life would be out of character for her or anything. I guess I just thought that she, like, wouldn't waste her time Mm -hmm. but well yeah in this section she in this chapter she says that she's doing this sort of as a favor for Taravangian thank god what a good guy yeah Um, you're welcome Beyond what was your basic reaction to seeing Yasna do this it's that meme where it's good for her (laughs) good for her yeah is that a Kim Kardashian's mom or something? No, not. It's from Arrested Development, I think. Oh, yeah, there's that. But now I'm thinking of the thing where Kim Kardashian's mom with the camcorder is like, go on, sweetie, you're doing great. <laughs> that works, too. Um, I like that while she's a scholar, she doesn't just cloister her ideas and she uh, is going to take action with them. I think it reflects that, yes, she is related to... Um, the people we've been reading about in other sections who are just doing more all the time. Mm-hmm. And so even though she's a lady and eats the sweet foods and <laughs> uh, reads books, um, her uh, mentality for solving problems is uh, pretty direct. Yeah, I guess she is still a Lethe, and we've talked a lot about how terrible a Lethe culture is. So yeah. that might have something to do with it. Um, I, I do think, um, because she is in a position of power, even if she was discovered, I think the ramifications of killing four people would be different because she is a princess, as opposed to if she was a more generic light eyes. Um, I think there are definitely some power dynamics in it, and one could argue that there were reasons why these guys went to it, maybe like the poverty in the city and other sorts of circumstantial suffering. But at the same time, though, I'm all for ladies empowering themselves and letting themselves actually like live their lives and not having to restrict themselves because of gross patriarchy things. Well, that's a take. I'm not sure if Shalon's issue with this is because Yasna's a woman. But. No, no, no. Um, I, I, I guess I didn't convey that properly. Um, I think you're comparing it to real life, right? Not. I, I guess I am. Where it's the the idea of first safety, women stay inside during specific time frames, and there's the idea if you go out during these times, or you present in a certain way, and you don't have, I don't know, some dude protecting you, it kind of falls on you as a victim. Yeah, I mean, Shalon, that is Shalon does a little victim blamingy stuff. Yeah, yeah, that is the question that she brings up. Is like, it's not. Not that it is my fault 
for wanting to walk around, but because I knew that this was a place where people would attack me if I walked around, do I hold any level of blame for being attacked by walking here? No. So I guess that's why Shalon, later on we see Shalon doing um, some actual philosophical research, and I guess that's why she actually cares about intent, because the actions that Yasna takes are not distinguishable from a woman just going about her business, but Yasna is doing it with the intent of being attacked, which is slightly different. But yeah, it's an actual question. But I guess the real thing of this chapter is that it illustrates the distinctions between Yasna and Shalon, because Shalon finds all of this so objectionable that it reverses her objections to stealing the Soulcaster, and she decides that uh, Yasna doesn't deserve it, and she makes the swap between Yasna's Soulcaster and her broken Soulcaster. Did Yasna do this on purpose, as in she knew she was going to try and steal it, and so she was just like, all right, let's get going, Shalon. We'll have to read and find out. I don't know, good question. It's like we're only halfway through this book. Because in a way, it seems like a really direct thing of Yasna just wanting her to flip that switch of taking that action, but also knowing that Shalon's feeling conflicted. I mean, hey, it's possible. It's perhaps it's me because I this is literally all I've read. It just seemed as if Yasna might have known about some of the feelings Shalon's been having and just decided to poke him a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it is a pretty abrupt change in teaching methodology. There might be more to it than meets the eye, but I'm legit not sure so we'll just maybe have to... it was a power play hoping that shallan would kind of be into it and <laughs> we could start the corruption of her hordes yeah let's get things going um anyways. sometimes you just gotta turn a man to fire Mm-mm-mm. anyways <sighs> so that's that's the end of that chapter uh so chapter 37 is called sides it's another beloved kaladin flashback chapter it's super not beloved by me. I mean, this one has some scenes that like stick with me, but it's not like I love the chapter or something. This is where the stretch of banger chapters sort of comes to a close for me. Um, so we go to Kaladin as a teenager. And just a note, we get a line where Kaladin's mother describes Spren, saying that Spren appear when something changes. So just stick that in your cap and keep it with you. Is it when something human changes or is when anything changes? When anything changes, because like wind Spren and dung Spren. But things are always changing. Well, and that's why Kaladin's mom says everything has Spren. Thinking emoji. Because nothing is ever stagnant. Except for stagnant water. Even then, there's still life and things changing in stagnant water. The bacteria are really happy. Stagnancy's 
Um, so at this point in Kaladin's life, he has resolved that he's going to be a soldier and that the next time the recruiters come around, he's just going to ditch and become a soldier. So just like we saw with Shallan's chapter before, uh, Kaladin gets sort of a three-point psychological trajectory for this chapter where he'll start in one place and end in another, which is very distinct. So Kaladin's going to start this chapter thinking he wants to go and be a soldier and he's going to end up in a different place. He ends up wanting to be a good, good surgery boy. But for the wrong reasons. Yeah. We'll get to it. Um, at the beginning of this chapter, Kaladin is doing chores around the house, but knows that his dad is about to go have dinner with Bright Lord Rashon and ditches to go join his dad on this real important dinner. He's like, I was invited, right? Right, Dad? Papa? Was I invited? It seems a little bit where he's also trying to avoid eating just roots for dinner. Yeah, but then he gets offered, like, free nice food and doesn't eat it. Come on. Oh, man. Because his feelings are hurt. His widow Fifi's. Yeah, we'll get to it. Um, um, Cal, facts don't care about your feelings. Oh, my God. Anyways... Cal demonstrating excellent abilities to take care of himself, mentally and physically. We'll let you talk now. Um, when Kaladin's father begins having dinner with Rashon, Kaladin is unable to realize that his interjections in this conversation are not helpful. <laughs> so no, unhelpful. He's so unhelpful. Oh my god. He's just a little kid. Like, be quiet, kid. He's like throwing out the petulant child answers. And it's like, you realize your dad is, like, trying to figure something out right now, and you he hasn't clued you in on how he wants this to go, and you're still, you know, interfering. Listen, the people, the players, and the characters both on, I'm only bringing this up because I've been watching a lot of it, on Critical Role are, like, completely worthless at following a plan, and they go into plans better than Kaladin is going into this one, which is, I hate you. Yeah, like, I, I guess he just doesn't realize that there's a plan. He thinks that his dad is there just to sort of, like, spit in Rashon's face. But... Yeah, Cal's dumb. And he's, like, 13 at this point. Like, 15. 13 or 14. 15. <sighs> yeah, he doesn't seem like he's acting like a 15-year-old. He seems like he's a, being a petulant 12 or 13-year-old. Well, I guess that's why when he gets sent away from the big people's table and sent to the kitchen to get a child's meal, he feels particularly immature. Maybe you shouldn't have been mouthing off like that, Cal. But, like, even then he doesn't put it together. He's like, what kind of idiot served me children's food? I'm a grown-up. I was just sitting at the grown-up table. <laughs> um, so the childishness he feels at being sent away then connects with his fantasy of being a soldier. He realizes that his, like, re refrain that he's going to run away and be a soldier is just as childish and petulant as what he has just been doing at this dinner. And he's like, wow, I've been really dumb. Finally, the first <laughs> good decision our good cousin has made. Ever. Cousin. They're all cousins now. Gotcha. Wait, they're all cousins? Always have Always been. Always have been. 
trust no one, not even the astronaut that's also you. Um, not even the storm daddy? No. So when Kaladin is moping in the corner of the kitchen, Rashon's son comes in with Laurel, and Rashon's son is like a classic uh, Jane Austenian rich bad guy. I mean, it's not like either of them really wanted to be in an arranged relationship. I, I think maybe with the other flashbacks, Laurel might have had some affections for Cal, but Cal was a dense, dense... I mean, I feel like everything with Laurel and him died when he had that fight back in, like, one of the first flashbacks, and then nothing happened. Yeah, it was just kind of a throwaway of... Well, she was like, I want you to be a big, strong hero soldier man. And then he tried and just got beat repeatedly. Well, I think what more killed the relationship is that he failed to save her father. Did he fail to save her father, or did his father fail to save her father? I mean, they were both doing it. Nah. Well. I mean, not that I'm saying that, like, they should have saved him, and they could have and didn't. I'm just saying that there's a lot of stuff in this book about how people won't believe that Kaladin's dad did all he could and will just blame him for the small things he was not able to do. So Even I think that's Laurel. part of it. How sad. So Kaladin gets totally worked over in a debate with this rich boy. And Laurel it just treats him like crap as well, which makes him really mad. It's like, I'm so mad I could accept that my father stole a few million dollars. Yeah, so that's the thing. At the end of the dinner, Kaladin is on his way home with his father, and he has the realization, with based on some of the things that his father is saying about how he needs to deal with Rashon, that the claims Rashon is making about Kaladin's father stealing the spheres from the old city lord is actually true. Yep, he's a big old thief, man. Which, good for him. Man of many hats. Also steal from the rich. Yeah. So this is sort of point three on Kaladin's psychological journey of this chapter. Like, he went from wanting to be a soldier to rejecting that and wanting to be a surgeon again. But then he has a revelation about his father, and that changes how exactly he feels about wanting to be a surgeon, and he decides that he wants to do it for more selfish reasons. And that he wants to get educated as a surgeon so that he can stand up to light eyes, not so that he can save people. And we're going to see a similar sort of uh, trajectory in Kaladin in the chapter with where he ends up training people in the chasms i don't know if i'm going to be explaining this very well but this is just sort of the connections i'm making that's fine i mean you have a better idea of any connections than we do like we see this thing where essentially characters will start a chapter with a misguided idea come to a revelation about that idea and make progress but then come to another revelation that complicates where they got to and makes it so that where they end up is better than where they started, but still fundamentally misguided. And we see that like three different times in this section. Mm. You're wrong, but just a different wrong now. You're, you're not even the wrong that you thought you were. You're even more wrong than that. 
Um, so at the end of this chapter, Kaladin says that he wants to start going by Kaladin because it sounds a bit more regal than just Kaladin. He's a man now. Yeah, he's no more no more childishness for Kaladin Stormblast. <laughs> no more kids' table. So that is the end of that chapter. Chapter 38 is called Invisitor. What's that? It's not even a word. I mean, it's someone who envisages. Whoa. Um, so we get some hallucinatory rambling from Kaladin while he's on his deathbed. Including seeing Deathspren. Really descriptive of how nasty those little Deathsprens are. Fist sides, anger balls. Yeah. Also, pretty much the exact same description as the Voidbringers. Thinking emoji. Yeah, I feel pretty confident. Aren't Voidbringers way bigger, though? Yeah. But. And you know, like, physically present? You know what I mean. I'm not saying that, like... your death sprint I'm has not, evolved. I'm not saying he has Voidbringers crawling on his chest. I'm saying, like, the burning coal eyes and the darkness and the spindly legs and the, like, hate creatures. Like, that's how... Yes, exactly. A cat. It's described just like a cat. That's not gonna make any sense on recording, because I'm gonna cut out the part where Jesse's cat meowed extremely loudly into the mic. Because I almost roll over her paw. Wow. I mean, I would meow at you too for that. I'd meow at you. She needs that. Speaking of she, at the end of this little hallucinatory experience, uh, Syl is... Oh yeah, fending off Deathsbren with a sword. That's also an image that sticks with me. Yeah, she's like regal and holding a sword made of light. Fighting off the death spren. It's a metaphor, like she's a blinding light with a sword fighting off the death spren. It's It's a metaphor for the exact thing it is. (laughs) Water's like a metaphor for water. It's Nah, but the imagery it paints is really cool. It's also relevant to information later in the story. To what is Syl? To what is Syl, yeah. Which, by the way, absolutely vindicated in my never-ending quest to make sure everybody knows that I know that Syl isn't just a windspread. I mean, by the end of this section, we pretty much know that, too. So after this set of hallucinations, uh, we get some more Teft POV. Um, We see that Teft had used to belong to a cult called the Invisitors. And hmm. because of his Oh, was it a cult and I just didn't read that? It I just guess, seemed very I, religious. Yeah, I guess that's me bringing in future knowledge. It's a cult. It's a cult. Oh, righty. But it's a cult with accurate beliefs about the Radiance, apparently, because his involvement with this cult lets him know what's going on with Kaladin. But... For him, it's a bit of a weird thing because he had rejected all of the stuff that the Invisitors had taught him, and now Kaladin is essentially showing him that it was all true. Let me eat this stormlight and heal. Because Teft hands Kaladin some infused spheres. Kaladin breathes in real deep, 
and then Kaladin's body starts glowing. All his cuts start giving off stormlight and healing, which just is cool to me. It's sort of a trope of, like, the rapid healing, but to me, the idea that, like, you suck in the stormlight and it makes your body glow and all of your wounds heal, for me, it just feels cool. I like it. It is cool. Sanderson magic is always cool. Like, it's tropey, but I still like it. I mean, that's the thing. That's, uh, you and I talked off recording about Sanderson books and how I kind of made the comparison to, like, Marvel movies where they're entertaining and at a baseline they're, like, okay to good, but usually they're pretty good and sometimes sometimes they're they're really, really good. Yeah, but, like... Yeah, it's not that there's some, like, perfect mastercraft, it's just that they're really good entertainment and they execute on the thing that they're trying to do, which is usually just cool magic. Willie agrees. Willie couldn't agree more. Welcome to the fourth wheel. (laughs) Oh, Willie's the fourth wheel. She turned us into a car. (laughs) We're no longer a tricycle. We've evolved into a car. If we can stop being one of those, like, motorcycle tricycles, where it's got the two in front and the one in back, I would actually really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you, Willie. What the fuck Willie. does that mean? Do you not know what I'm talking about? No, I'm, I mean, I know the object you're referring to. I just don't want to be one of those. <laughs> I mean, you could be like a child's tricycle. Even better. That's what I've been imagining ourselves as, is just one of those, like, screeching tricycles. Do we have the tassels on the handlebars? We could. I, I've just been thinking, like, the red paint on it. Mm-hmm. And just, like, screechy wheels. So that's the end of chapter 38. Chapter 39 is called Burned Into Her. And Shalon isn't doing so hot. No. No. Yeah. She's pretty traumatized seeing four guys being killed in front of her, and she's also being eaten alive by guilt and paranoia over stealing Yasna's soulcaster. Yeah, so those guilt and paranoia sprint are really getting to her. Essentially, um, Shalon has stolen the soulcaster, but Yasna hasn't even reacted yet, and she's like, what's going on? Yeah, she feels the, like, pressure constantly mounting. Yeah, and she feels like she can't leave before Yasna realizes, because then Yasna will make the connection between her and her soulcaster. She has all sorts of weird justifications for why she still needs to stick around. But I think mostly she's just not in a good place. Near the end of this chapter, Shalon tries to... Uh, use Yasna's soulcaster so that she'll know how to use it when she gets home, and she isn't able to make it work. Yeah. Uh, So somewhere in here is the... Oh, it's towards the beginning of the chapter. Is the uh, relitigation of the thing that Bion and I talked about a while ago with intent versus actions. It's old questions. It's an old question, and Bion doesn't look like they want to fight about it. Chapter 40, Eyes of Red and Blue. 
Thank you. Did you figure out we were there on your own? No. I had help. Don't worry. I gave you some of my help, Spran. <laughs> help or Spran. So at the beginning of this chapter, Kaladin is awake and able to walk around. And we got a scene where he walks out and all of his bridgemen are practicing on their own. And they all drop their bridge and run around to give him a hearty clap on the back. And these are all just such good boys. I was about to do a clap on the back to be on, but I think it would be really bad audio. Also, you'd hurt yourself. What? I can clap you on the back without hurting myself. Uh-huh. Sure. Fragile dust bones. So, all of the men of Bridge 4 are in a real good mood because Kaladin survived, but Kaladin has the opposite mood because he has come to the realization that no matter how well he trains his men, they're just going to have to keep running bridges until they die. Yeah, because the bridge crew has no value if they don't die in place of actual soldiers. Mm -hmm. Like, even in... I think what his decision is based in is, like, if you made every bridge crew do the side carry effectively, and then none of your bridge crew members died the entire run, it would still, like, you would be killed once you got back to camp. Because that's Mm -hmm. not the point. Yeah. So, I mean, like, at the end of the side carry debacle, Lamoral literally said bridgemen aren't meant to survive, and Calden is, like, having that play in his head over and over again. I guess there's, it's worth discussing the distinction between this hopelessness and the hopelessness of, like, a regular soldier. I guess, like, when you're a regular soldier, you get a shield, but damn, I still can't really imagine being asked to, like, risk your life in any capacity for some other like national interest regardless of being slightly better protected than the bridgemen are i mean any level of protection is better than the bridgemen have yeah but i mean wouldn't be enough for me probably because we're aware of the uh other parts of war not because we've experienced it perhaps but just what we've learned about wars and how we see that the military industrial complex saves no one the lefty don't even i mean that's not why like they don't have the military industrial complex they just have but i mean they're literally fighting for profit they're just right but i mean it's not like a lefty don't know what industry is they can't read um but i mean even if it wasn't necessarily like to profit off of it they would still be fighting because they would be hyped about it it just so happens that this fight they can, like, pretend that it isn't for profit while also making whole boatloads of money at the same time. But for me, it's just interesting that Kaladin sees being a soldier as some way better than being a bridgeman, I guess. But, like, the only real distinction I could think is that a bridgeman is forced into it and can't quit, but the soldiers also can't quit. So, meh. Kaladin needs to see a therapist and to get on some medications to help modulate his thinking processes. Because he says here in this chapter, he found himself face to face with the man he'd left behind. The one he'd abandoned that night, he decided not to throw himself into the chasm. A man with haunted eyes. A man who had given up on caring or hoping. A walking corpse. So we're seeing Kaladin fall back into his good old depression mode.
get the boy some antidepressants and some CBT. Uh, not the kinky kind. CBD. No, cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay. (laughs) Not the other CBT. Get that boy some CBT. I mean, maybe it would help him with the punishing himself, but I didn't mean the kinky kind. I I meant the cognitive behavioral therapy or the dialectical behavior. Psychology words are hard. Nietzsche. (laughs) Dialectical or cognitive behavioral therapy. He, He... it's it's just one of those things where it's maybe it's just me, but it's I find it very frustrating to read characters who have manic depressive tendencies. Maybe that's just my personality, but I have difficulty enjoying reading a book when a character's going through things like this. Because myself is just I don't know, fan fiction ready to throw some therapists at them. And it makes it hard for me to stay invested in the character. Are there therapy AUs? Or like... I mean, I've read some. They're not as common as, like, coffee shop AUs. (laughs) Or fake dating AUs. Or, and they were roommates. But, um, yeah. I think I've gotten way off track. Anyways, uh, near the end of this chapter... Kaladin has a bit of a conversation with Sigzel, very important character, this Sigzel. Um, He's been educated. Um, there's a line that I pulled out uh, where Sigzel says, At first I hated you for lying to the men, but I have come to see that a false hope makes them happy. What you do is like giving medicine to a sick man to ease his pain until he dies. Now these men can spend their last days in laughter. You are a healer indeed, Kaladin Stormblessed. And it's like, damn, Kaladin, someone has just, like, spelled out all of the contradictions in your character and shown how they can be resolved and you're not listening. He's like, no, but I'm sad, though. (laughs) I've failed everyone I've been near. Everyone I try to help dies. I hear what you're saying, but (laughs) I am very sad. So... Wow, that's me. (laughs) I am a disaster, and I am damaging you by being in proximity to you. Never mind the fact that you would have been in a worse situation without me. No. No, that's not the thing. I, myself, the individual, have ruined your future. So, chapter 41 is called Of Alds and Milp. What a name. What? (laughs) Sorry, did you say something? What did you just call me? It's the chapter name is literally referring to the fact that there are two characters named Alds and Milp that don't get any attention. Great. Oh, um, oh, it's the one the 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 two locals who are abandoned because rich boy pri- takes priority because this is a society and nobody cares about the commoners because this is a flashback chapter. Uh, sorry. Wait, I know you want to talk about how much you love the flashback chapters, but. There is a picture of an axe hound at the end of chapter 40. Yeah, they're cute. And oh, I, was that an axe hound? It is literally labeled axe hound. It's hard to read those images. I'm showing Beyond again so that we can get sort of a live reaction. Its face is like the grasshopper in Ants, A Bug's Life or whatever. Those are two movies, so okay. 
he's, his his face the, the the face looks like an angry grasshopper who was given a jaw and then there's just so many legs and then there's a fin this is not cute we'll agree to disagree agree to disagree anyway chapter 41 is called of Alton and Melp uh so this chapter starts right in the thick of things where Kaladin's father is having to operate on Bright Lord Rashon and Bright Lord Rashon's son because they got injured doing a hunt. They're, they essentially Robert Baratheon themselves. Bobby B. Bobby B represent the arrogance. Bobby B, why'd you have to go? And Kaladin notices that uh, there's a moment where his father was considering, you know, intentionally botching Rashon's surgery. I mean, it would have been the smarter thing to do because he already has said to Rashon that he can't save his son, and Rashon is not pleased about it. And so, if Rashon lives and his son doesn't, he's just going to take it out against them. It is literally a point for their survival and better continued existence to alleviate this problem. Yeah, but Laurel is wow. too good I, of a I'm, man. I, I'm so glad you're not a surgeon. <laughs> well, I mean, I have shaky hands. These shaky hands cannot do surgery. But, I mean, he's already being mistreated by this guy in power. He already knows they don't care because they left behind the two other local boys they dragged along for their hunt. And so they've been left to die on the rocks somewhere the sun is gone because he got speared by uh, angry animal tusks the father is already unhappy because to his face the doctor is like nah i'm gonna triage and your son is uh, no longer my priority nothing there by letting them continue to live helps them Except, you know, just the value of saving lives. But it turns out Kaladin would agree with you, Bion, because Kaladin's revelation at the end of this chapter is that he, is that his father says, no, I couldn't have, I'm not a killer. And then at the end, Kaladin's like, you know what? I'm pretty sure I could have. And he realizes he is capable of killing. It's like, oh man, murder's the best. I get enough. It's it's more just that I find it extremely frustrating whenever you see a character presented as good that refuses to take action because they're afraid of that being bad as if doing a single controversial action makes them inherently awful forever when that could solve a problem really quickly. The 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 need to be good and to held to the standard of good at the detriment of future s- people's livelihoods makes no sense to me. Like, yeah, you might feel better in this specific incident that you didn't do something bad, but if by your inaction you directly cause more suffering, how can you say that you're good? I think this is the same question as what Jasna was trying to present to Shalon. Is like, you could... Like, where does it end up as far as like if if they could have killed Rashon, then is every bad thing that Rashon does from this point on their fault because they could have stopped it or is it Rashon's fault because the only person in control of your actions is yourself and would it have still been bad regardless because when Kaladin's dad killed him he isn't thinking about the bad that Rashon is going to do to other people he's thinking about the bad that Rashon's going to do to him 
But at the same time, everybody who, like, do you get to make the decision that he gets to live when he is going to equally negatively affect the lives of a bunch of other people? Do they not get a say, knowing that they have the chance to not suffer those negative effects right now, but instead you are deciding to afflict them with those effects because you don't want to be the one to have to go to sleep tonight knowing you let him die? Wow, it sounds like you guys are, like, really on the side of just kill this dude. I mean, yeah, you definitely just kill this dude. I logically see where you're coming from, but I can also see why this character in particular does not have it in him to do it. Oh, yeah, well, that's because Laurel's a little baby child. He came back to this town that hates him, and he will die in this town that hates him. I can't leave the people, Cal. These are my people. They hate you, and... Everything about you. I can't let Rashon die, Cal. He's my people. Even though Rashon's now going to take an even harsher stance against me and my family. I have to let my family starve, Cal. Otherwise, you might have to work to pay for the last week of school instead of spending, like, one one-thousandth of this incredible sum of money we've been given so that we don't have to eat roots and dirt for a month. Anyway, That's my Laurel impression. Also, his name's Liren. Whatever. Um, Who's Laurel? Oh, Laurel's the girl. Yeah. Who cares? They're all trash. Literally every person from this town is trash except Tien. His mom seems okay. The mom seems okay, but also, I don't know. She's she's generic mom. Are you implicitly accepting what the husband is doing by continuing to hang out with him? Anyway. Well, I didn't expect you guys to feel so strongly that Kaladin's father was in the wrong for saving someone's life. Um, Well, it's just not a a practical survival thing when he's already in this place of being targeted. He is, If you were to have some amount of sympathy for Liren, he has a line that's pretty important. He says, somebody has to start, somebody has to step forward and do what is right because it is right. If nobody starts, then others cannot follow. Yeah, it's definitely the right thing to do to let this guy continue to live and oppress the entire town. Absolutely. Thousand percent. I mean, if he dies, someone else is going to come and... And what? Put them all to the sword? Or enslave them all? I'm saying that killing Rashon doesn't change the power structures that make light eyes oppress dark eyes. Right, but I'm saying unless the next person comes in and either kills or enslaves everyone in town, there's not really anywhere to go but up. Like, not that Liren should just kill every person that comes to take over the town until you get a good one, but at the same time, like, oh no, what's the next one gonna do? Make them all live in fear and make some of the people starve to death because he doesn't like them? Like, uh, that's what's happening now. Because his son hasn't survived, it seems like a no-brainer for me to just remove the issue. Because if the son had survived, there's no point in really killing Rashon because, yes, the power dynamic would remain the same. But now you have a person who is grieving, who has actively previously being, but before he was operated upon, being told that his son will not survive. This is somebody who's in a position of power, who hates being in the town that he's in, who hates the fact that he doesn't have enough power that he wants, whose power was not enough to compel the surgeon to save his son. So all he's going to do is take it out on them. So from a survival-based concept, like just for the individual, it isn't practical, safe, 
sound, etc., to let him continue existing. Okay, question. Do you think you personally could kill someone? Yes. I'm not sure. I haven't been put in a situation where I have had to. We've talked about this. But from... I don't think I could. So therefore, I'm not able to take (laughs) your argument on this, like, in this particular case. Like... I'm not going to judge anyone for not being able to kill someone in cold blood. I don't know. Is Liren not able or is he choosing not to? Because it sounds like he's choosing not to. He's choosing not to because his son's there and he doesn't want to have a bad example for his son. No, he says that if he wasn't there, he still wouldn't have done it. Right, but what I'm saying is... Anyway, that's semantics. It doesn't matter. Anyways, I'm not going to judge someone for not being capable of murder is my... Is well, my take. We'll agree to disagree. I did not expect this to be the point of discussion for this section. Well, well, you know, Tyler and I have very similar opinions on certain things. And when it does, <laughs> oops. All I'm going to say is I feel differently. Like, very differently. Anyways, chapter 42 is called Beggars and Barmaids. And it's, a, it's midnight 30 here. I don't want to, <laughs> like... Uh, not a ton happens in this chapter. That's fine. I don't even... Shalon does some more flirting. There's a lot of flirting in this chapter. So much flirting. Um, really the one thing I want to pull out is that while Shalon is practicing with the Soulcaster, a disembodied voice says, What are you? Yeah. That's worth noting. I just started skimming the chapter, and like, as you started saying that, the skim ended at that particular page. Are Soulcasters alive? I guess we'll find out, won't we? I guess we'll find out, won't we? Um, there is a pattern being established, though. Tyler. What? Tyler. What? Shh. It's literally not a spoiler unless you do the thing of why would you say that spoiler? Is it a pattern that has been woven as the wheel turns? Yeah, I got you, fam. This whole thing is a Wheel of Time fanfic. (laughs) So while flirting, we get some details about Shalon's father that we reinforce that her father was like a total dickhead. Yeah, he sounds like a real jerk. I'm glad that guy's dead. I would have killed him. Yeah. That's a joke. (laughs) Um, So yeah, a lot of this is just Shalon searching her soul about how she feels about her situation right now. Not a ton, like, happens, happens. Yeah, I seriously don't remember anything that happened in this chapter, except that it's apparently very long as I scroll through it looking for any details about anything happening. Um, um, she talks to Cobsall again? Amidst the flirting, she asks about the Soulcaster and stealing it, and he talks about how it was an idea passed around with his superiors, but it was never something that was going to be acted upon. Oh, mm-hmm. And the thing that happens at the end of this is that she's given a timer to leave. Yeah, she gets a note saying that her ship's captain is going to be coming back in a week. And she decides that she's going to leave when he comes back. Um, So chapter 43 is called The Wretch. Um, And this is the last chapter that I note this sort of like three-point psychological trajectory happening with Kaladin in this chapter. Yeah, I think I remember this one being, like, a pretty hard turning point for him. So... Also, sorry, one of the early sentences is, Why try? Why care? It's like, yeah, buddy. It's a good question, huh? 
Um, so there's a new uh, Bright Lord assigned to rule over the bridge crews, and his wife does all the talking. And they say that uh, Bridge 4 is now permanently assigned to Chasm Duty. And the Bridge 4 men are like, what are we going to do, Kaladin? And Kaladin's like, well, I guess we have Chasm Duty. Let's go. Enjoy your Chasm Duty. Except even more depressed. And I have failed you all, and I will continue to fail you all. And all of them were kind of happy because they're like, yeah, our menace lived. And then Cal's just woken up, and he's not he's not very sad he's very sad and he's not doing okay and everyone is feeling very disappointed i've said it before and i'll say it again kaladin depressed lol (laughs) so on their way down into the chasm we get a line from sill so as they're descending into a chasm we get a line from sill saying that she hates killing but she has helped men kill before hmm more and more spooky details revealed about Syl. That definitely sounds like a windspread thing. Yeah. Listen, sometimes the wind could kill you. Um, I think it's before where you're at now, but I just wanted to call out that um, Kaladin makes an extremely specific metaphor in here, and it feels very silly. He says... He felt like a wanderer seeking desperately for a pathway into the city to escape wild beasts, but the city was atop a steep mountain, and no matter how he approached, the climb was always the same. And it's like, Sometimes you gotta have, like, a five-part metaphor. Listen, dude, (laughs) the point of a metaphor is to make it simpler, but, like, you just kept adding. Anyways, the encapsulation of where Calvin's head is at in this chapter... They said, my father told me that it is impossible to protect by killing. Well, he was wrong. He was wrong because he implied that you could protect people in other ways. You can't. So that's I mean, you can that. if you have power. I'm just saying, Kaladin is wrong. But this is just how he's thinking right now. Kaladin isn't exactly the best thinker. Kaladin's in a negative headspace at this time. So while they're digging through corpses looking for stuff to bring back, Calvin essentially announces to the entire bridge crew that we're bait, we're going to die, there's nothing I can do about it. And he essentially just breaks all the trust that he had built up with all of his bridgemen for like the last month. He, like, looking at him from the outside, this bridge crew must think he's insane. Because, like... Spoilers, he does not continue being depressed for the rest of his life, and he becomes undepressed before every single person in the bridge crew dies. So, like, everybody that has now seen him go through these is just seeing him be, like, on top of the world, I am Kaladin Stormblast, we're all going to live, and I'm going to make us all kings, into depression, and then back up, but, like, four times in, like, a month. This man has a chemical imbalance. This man... (laughs) Is having an episode. I mean, at this point, they've all just got to be like, let's just give him a day or two and he'll be fine. I mean, maybe. And in order to realign his thinking, Teft gives him the line, journey before destination. And Sigzel clarifies the entire motto of the Knight's Radiant. Life before death, strength before weakness, journey before destination. And we're going to be hearing those words a lot. Yeah, I keep seeing them in places... On the internet. So essentially, 
Syl uses those ideals to enforce to him that the fight itself is meaningful. The fight of being alive, life before death. Hmm. And that leads Kaladin to uh, make the decision that he's going to lead his men, but this time his idea is that he's going to train them how to fight while in the chasms so that they can fight their way out of the camps and escape and live on the run for the rest of their lives. Direct action. I mean, direct action, but also I feel like it's supposed to be clearly like, this is not like the right idea, but it's better than where he was at. Like, this is not like the apotheosis of Calvin's character is this decision. Like, no. this is just, he's better than where he was before, but he hasn't like reached enlightenment with this plan or something this is desperation to have meaning within a chasm <laughs> pretty much yeah that about sums it up and speaking of summing it up that's the end of this section yeah i i'm very tired and i felt like i didn't do a great job really summarizing for the last bit you did but... i mean there wasn't even i don't remember that much uh, being there to summarize you brought up the three-point emotional journeys of the characters and that was interesting to discuss that was better than i would have done yeah oh, same Tyo and i would have just talked about how uh how what a pussy lyran is for not killing this guy what a little no nah, just what a frustrating demonstration of good <laughs> because it bothers me how good is always, oh no, we can't do that because that would make us bad. We need to make an example. And it's like, oh my God, get over yourself. Well, I'll just say I fundamentally disagree. I mean... Seems weird, but okay. Not trying to... Yeah, I don't know. Like, the... I, I acknowledge the need for action, but I also would never judge someone for not being able to do something like that. Again, I question the, like, exact breakdown of whether it's a can't or a wouldn't. And it seems a I bit mean, preachy. It's, I, it I is, think it's it because is, it, it seems preachy. to a point of a couldn't because that is where I am at. I would not be able to do that. Just like, as long as you fact. don't, like, try to pull some higher, I'm good and so I can't do it. That's, that's I think, partially why I feel so reactionary because um, the to be a better man, I shouldn't do this. It's like, no, it's a personal decision related to yourself. It doesn't make you an inherently better person. Anyways, I, I guess I need to actually close out the episode. Yeah, but before Tyler and I go off again about this, that's more of a philosophical discussion for me than the uh, ethics of Jasna's hands-on lesson. Fiona and I will yell about it tonight after the recording ends i don't want to I want yell to about how much you agree yeah Anyways. i'm um, yelling because i agree with I you i agree with you i love and um, agree with you <laughs> so that has been this episode of the third wheel if you oh my god i'm like so spaced if you want to tell us how wrong we are either one two or all three of us simultaneously you can find us on Twitter at Wheel Reading, which the link will be in the description. Wow. You How's it feel me. to be completely replaced? You saved me. Can you finish? Uh, yeah, this has been The Third Wheel, and we next week we will be talking about 
some chapters that I am going to have an answer to. You know what? Let's just finish out part three, unless this first interlude... Yeah, this first interlude's pretty... Do we just want to do all the interludes? Puts us at, like, 115 pages instead of like, 100. Are you role-playing being... No, I'm role-playing being Tyler, asking the other people on this podcast how far you want to read. I don't care. I'll have to take a closer look. Okay. We will at least be finishing chapter 51, maybe all of the interludes. And with that, this has been The Third Wheel. I'm Jesse. I'm Tyler. And I'm Beyond. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Goodbye. <laughs>